0: We are in Daniel chapter 9, and that's where we want to pick up. We're starting that chapter a little out of... of, We we get a small break from looking at things that are uh, prophetic. So we get into the last portion of Daniel chapter 9. We pick that theme up, and it largely continues through the rest of the book. Uh, But just today in this section that we're in, we get a little bit of a reprieve from that and some encouragement here. Um, It's all still very applicable to the circumstances we might find ourselves in today as a country, uh, and even probably more applicably as a church, as the body of Christ. So let's look quickly. And just sort of establish, you'll remember that, uh, and we've talked about this before, but a couple of these books, uh, excuse me, chapters within Daniel are out of chronology. They're not in order sequentially. And so we pick up in this chapter, chapter 9, and there's been some time in between uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9. The chapter 5 would fit somewhere between those chapters. Chapter 5 is where we read... Uh, we have Belshazzar, uh, Belshazzar. he has his, uh, Belshazzar, excuse me. He has his vision, the handwriting on the wall. Daniel comes and in, interprets it. and then at the very conclusion of that chapter, the last couple of verses, that's when Babylon falls to Darius. And we pick up here, if you'll read verse one with me, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So we get that chronology here, where this is somewhere between because in Daniel chapter eight, we're in the reign of Belshazzar. So he hasn't Babylon hasn't fallen yet, and that's stuck in there somewhere in the middle. Okay, so we're out of chronology. That's fine, but I just bring it up. Most books in the Bible are tend to be chrono- chronological, and so they build upon themselves, God in His uh, sovereignty has recorded Daniel and inspired Daniel to write things down and to do so out of chronology. I think that it lends itself, we, we talked about a change of audience in chapter eight, how we transition from Aramaic into Hebrew, and that's a significant change of audience, and it's giving us some indication. And we pick up here in Daniel, where in this chapter, the the parts we're going to look at today, there's some confession being made on the part of uh, Israel, of Judah specifically. Okay, but let's look at chapter, excuse me, verse 2. It says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, a couple of things that I want to point out. We're going to talk about these things that he's talking about here. We have Jeremiah. He was largely the prophet that was prophesying about the fall of Judah and the 70-year Babylonian captivity, and we talked about that to some degree as we introduced the book of Daniel, so that we kind of knew where we were. And so that's uh, that, that that comes back into play here, um, and he talks about this. Daniel is here studying those scrolls, those recorded writings of Jeremiah, and he comes to the conclusion that, listen, 70 years is what God said was going to happen. And he's able to deduce, this is when we came in captivity, this is how long has passed, we're nearing the end. Now, in 2 Chronicles, turn there with me, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, if you will, Second Chronicles 36, and verse 21, says, To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. One of the reasons, in addition to the sins of the people, one of the particular sins of the people uh, of Judah that was leading to this captivity is that they didn't keep those Sabbaths. And this isn't uh, a Sabbath, uh, the weekly Sabbath or anything like that. This is that year of Jubilee where the land gets to rest. You're not going to farm it. It's going it's to take its rest. And they weren't doing that. There was some motivation for whatever reasons to say, we're just going to keep farming. We're going to keep reaping whatever this field will will, uh, yield and therefore we'll we'll enrich ourselves all the more. And so God is saying, as part of this, I'm going to give the the Sabbaths and, and the 70 years is derived from how many years per Sabbath they neglected. And that's where he comes up with the 70 years and that's a reference here in second chronicles and you can read the rest of that chapter and get some further insight here now if we look turn to jeremiah chapter 25 uh, this is where we begin to see the prophecies of jeremiah Uh, there was prophecies leading up to this god had been telling israel judah and the, the kingdom of israel both that there is trouble coming because you guys are harboring sin whether it's in isaiah there's a lot of it there uh jeremiah in particular to judah warnings abounded jeremiah chapter 25 verses 11 and 12 it says, in the whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment and these nations shall serve the king of babylon 70 years and it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that i will punish the king of babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. So God in his sovereignty says, I'm going to use Babylon, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to be my instrument of correction. He's the one that overcomes and, and, and captures Jerusalem, brings the nation of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, into captivity in Babylon. And then, But God says, I'm not going to turn a blind eye to their sin. He's a just God, and so there's going to be, at the end of 70 years, judgment upon Babylon. Not because of the things necessarily that God used them to accomplish against His people, but against the other things that they've done. There's more there uh, than just that. And so God isn't somehow punishing them for being His instrument of correction. He's punishing them for their sins. And we have to keep that in mind. That would be unjust. In, in Jeremiah chapter 29, if you'll turn there with me, Jeremiah 29, verse 10, Jeremiah says, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So here's the promise, the, 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 the very clear, that after 70 years you'll come back to Jerusalem. God is promising this to them long before they ever go into captivity. And so Daniel is reading this, uh, and it occurred to me, what is he reading? What is he looking at? And and I remembered an account at the end of Jeremiah where all of these things, because what Jeremiah was prophesying was very unpopular. We are going to go into captivity because we have sinned. That is not a popular message. And I'll tell you what, it's still not a popular message. People and being confronted with their sinfulness and their need to repent of that and turn to the living God is an unpopular theme and has been from the very beginning. And so the king takes those things that, uh, that. Jeremiah has written down that he's recorded, as God has instructed him, and he burns them in Jeremiah chapter 36. But toward the end of that chapter, verses 27 and 28, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the roll, and the words which Barak wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, Barak being his uh, scribe, saying, take thee again another roll and write it all write in it all the former words that there were in the first roll which Jehoiakim the king of Judah has burned so there's this command to Jeremiah to take all those things that you recorded that have been destroyed and record them again there's a command to archive those things that's what God has told them to do that's what's happening that's what that's what Daniel is reading these scrolls that have been re-recorded that have been copied that have been distributed throughout Judah uh, there in Babylon that's what's being written and something to to point out here right we we talk about daniel studying scripture and and i and we look at that and uh, of course daniel was studying scripture because he was a real spiritual guy and all of these things but but consider this daniel is he's the head of state i mean he's a busy person He's consumed with the, the taking care of the things that the king has asked him to take care of, uh, with being an official, a politician, all of those things. He's a busy person. And in addition to that, he ends up being a prophet, uh, and interpreter of dreams. He's busy. And I point all that out because oftentimes what happens is we feel busy and we neglect those things that are needful. But Daniel, knowing what was needful, said, even though I'm busy, I'm going to purpose to be in the word of God, to study it. He, made, he took or made time, and he had the heart, the desire to study the word of God in Jeremiah's writings. And that's what we find him doing here. That's what we encounter him. And in the midst of that, he encounters a couple of things. Number one, he finds encouragement. Hey, I know that after 70 years, God is going to deliver us back to Jerusalem. There's encouragement there. The promises of God are reiterated to him. And understanding. Now, you and I have the same benefits from the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. If we have a desire to be like Daniel, to be somebody who would serve the Lord, who would be engaged in his business, to understand and to know our Savior, Jesus Christ, we're going to be in his word. That's where we learn about it. That's where we derive it from. And what it means is that like Daniel, we're going to put forth the effort and do those things necessary to... Not neglected. That those things that are around us, the the busyness, the pulls in every direction that we encounter and that we feel, aren't going to be a distraction. They're secondary. That first and foremost, our relationship with God in and through His Word takes precedent. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me, 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to read verses uh, 14 and 15. Here in this chapter, Paul is writing to Timothy and giving him some special instruction. And the instruction that he's giving him is in regard to the things that he's supposed to be uh, teaching and instructing and uh, modeling for his congregation in many respects. Timothy is pastor there, In um, it's escaped me all of a sudden. I want to say Ephesus, but I'm doubting myself. <clears throat> but there he is, and Paul's giving him some instruction. And he says this, of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. So, pause right there when we're looking at and we're discussing the word of god and we're talking about its application and those things we're not arguing about these very subtle nuances in what this word means or what that word means or or those kinds of things it says that those things accomplish the subverting of the hearers the it it, it sows confusion and it gets things out of perspective now i'm not saying that Studying and understanding what the original languages say is wrong or bad, and neither is the Lord. But what he's saying is they'll make a mountain out of a molehill. They'll make a mountain out of a molehill. But he continues on. He says, This study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He's going to study, he's going to put in the effort and the work to show yourself approved unto God to show your dedication, as it were, a workman that needs not be ashamed. And the reason there's no shame there is because he's able to rightly divide the word. When somebody says, hey, have you thought about what this means and what that means, and all this, there's a ready answer because I've studied it, I'm familiar with it. This is what the principle in the heart of God as he's revealed it in Scripture is, therefore I can talk about that. We talked about it just a little bit, and we're going to come back to this in some respects this morning. But a little bit this morning in Sunday school as we talked just briefly about taking the name of the Lord in vain. Am I able to make a defense? Am I able to stand and answer those questions and give that defense uh, contend for the faith? Do I represent it consistently and accurately? a workman who is in the word who is rightly dividing it who understands it and is working through it will do that now into into the confession itself the, this confession that Daniel makes and and he's not making a confession for himself necessarily though he is definitely included in this Daniel is making confession in regard to the kingdom of Judah to their very specific sins that they have harbored that they were being sent to Babylon for so Daniel starts this confession in in verse three but the first 19 verses of this chapter are Daniel's confession of the sins of Judah that's what it's about and more importantly and I want to point this out more importantly it's a confession about the justice the righteousness and the mercy of God Those are things, the the proclamation of the sinfulness is already there. Jeremiah made that very clear, but here we have this declaration and confession of the justice, the righteousness, and the mercy of God. And those are the things that we're going to focus on a little bit more this morning as we look at that. And we find similar things in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah, both also coincidentally coincidentally in chapter 9 of those books. And you'll remember that Ezra, that's when they go back. Uh, Cyrus commissions as, as these very people that are here in Babylon that Daniel is familiar with, Daniel being among them, are sent by Cyrus to go rebuild the temple. And then Nehemiah being sent to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And both of those men make this general confession on behalf of the people with similar confessions about God's justice, righteousness, and mercy. Let's read verse three. And I set my face unto the Lord to seek my to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. What we find here in that is, is the humbling of self, that Daniel, in the midst of his confession of the sins of the people and about the righteousness, justice, and mercy of God humbles himself. In other words, he's going to say, Lord, I want to see these things and understand them in the same way that you do. turns me to James chapter 4 for a moment. James chapter 4. And I want to look at verses 8 through 10, and I want to unpack these verses because this is, in many respects, the same application of what's happening the the response that daniel has to this encouragement to the word of god that we as believers hold so it says uh james chapter 4 verse 8 draw nigh to god and he will draw nigh to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded so we have this idea that we're drawing close to god first and foremost and he draws close to us God's not aloof and he's not standoffish as we draw near to him he draws near to us I would also maybe suggest that that another way to understand this is that we draw near to God and He doesn't move away. And the reason I say it that way is because He hasn't changed His position to us. The relationship that we enjoy with God, that father-son, that familial relationship, that covenant relationship is unchanging. It's based upon what He has done and who He is, and He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So we draw near to God and he remains there. He communes with us. That's the idea. But it says that we cleanse our hands. We, we you sinners, purify your hearts, you're double-minded. And that's really a statement of the same thing. But it's this idea of division. This idea of division within us. That here I have these hands. I, they need to be cleansed because I'm engaged in sin. Though I am a believer, though I'm in relationship and drawing near to the Lord, I'm engaged in sin duplicity. And he says, cleanse your heart, you double-minded. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, get off the fence. You're, you're with me or you're against me. Here we are, and, and that is set before us. <clears throat> Daniel specifically says that he set himself to seek the Lord in sackcloth and ashes, which throughout scripture and, and and even beyond scripture is clearly a manifestation of mourning and of grief. We see it happen in Nineveh, right? That here they, they come in, Jonah brings the message of this impending doom from God, and they mourn, they're grieved over the sin that they realize they've committed. And hey, let's see if God will somehow extend to us mercy. And they do so in sackcloth and ashes. Over and over throughout Scripture, when we find people mourning, we find them in deep grief and heartbroken over the things that are surrounding them, sackcloth and ashes. Daniel is clearly mourning here. And in in chapter 4 of the book of James, verse 9, he says, Be afflicted and mourn. Be afflicted and mourn. And weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. In other words, there's this idea that we are seeing ourselves in the the desperate need that we have for Christ. That we are looking at ourselves the the way that that we are, and not the way that we want to be or that we think we are. We pull back, we're humbling ourselves before the Lord, and we're saying, God, this is who I am. I'm a sinner, just as just as you have proven me to be. Just as your law reveals and clarifies my need for Jesus Christ, I acknowledge that before you. In Romans chapter 6, let me turn there, and you might want to write down Romans chapter 6, verse 11, beginning in verse 11, and on through verse 14. It says likewise reckon yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin but yield yourselves under right unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So there's this change that happens remember uh, that is, as we've been studying in Sunday school uh, about the new covenant, and we see these symbols in the old te- uh, Old Testament uh, about these covenants that were executed between God and man, and, and between people, and we see these symbols that happen. And one of those is the exchanging of robes. And here we are changing our identity. We're recognized on the outside by the things, uh, by the covering that we have received. And here he's. Telling us, listen, you've received this righteousness from God. That's our justification, being declared sinless by God himself. And he says, take that proclamation seriously. Stop yielding yourselves like you did in the past because we're free from sin. Stop yielding ourselves to it and yield ourselves as instruments of righteousness consistent with that which we have been clothed and declared to be and he continues on for sin shall not have dominion over you verse 14 for you are not under the law but under grace it doesn't have any dominion over us it doesn't have power over us any longer now there's a struggle with sin and that's real and we acknowledge that and but we're not slaves to it any longer We've been declared to be righteous. We've been declared to be free from sin. And so as we look in verse 9 of James chapter 4, we're afflicted, we mourn, we weep, we let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to heaviness. We're acknowledging our sinfulness, who we are, and we're also acknowledging we're humbling ourselves because we know that we didn't do anything to merit the favor of God, but a God in His love towards us, sent Jesus Christ we were, while we were yet sinners. And he continues in verse 10. He says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. In 1 Peter chapter 5, okay, it's back this way, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, says, humble yourselves therefore into the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. There's this clear idea throughout Scripture of humbling ourselves, of yielding ourselves before the Lord, saying, God, this is who I am. I'm desperate in need of you and and all that you offer me. And he exalts us. He lifts us up. Now, that doesn't mean that he necessarily, like Daniel, puts us in a position of authority and power and, and reputation. But what it does mean is that He lifts us from our depravity, from our sinful nature, from our uh, bondage to that sin, to a position of liberty and relationship with Him. That He exalts us. And you'll notice there in 1 Peter that it's in due time, that it's at the appropriate of the right season. We may share the gospel with people. We may tell them about Jesus Christ, and they may respond immediately. They may not. It may be days, months, weeks, years before they come to Christ, if ever, potentially. In John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, John the Baptist is, well, John the Baptist isn't speaking, but it does talk about John the Baptist, John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 but as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of god even to them that believe on his name which were born not of blood and this isn't our physical birth that's not the nature that we've been given in adam nor of the will of the flesh right the will of the flesh would pursue its own lust because it's caught in that sin and in addition to that Anything that we may bring, our own righteousnesses, my desire to be right before God and trying to obtain that, doesn't bring about this relationship with God, nor the will of man, but of God. Something that God does completely and wholly within you and I. We have this mourning, we have this, this grief over the sin of the people in Daniel, we find that for you and I as believers, not only individually, but as in regard to the church, there is a grief and a humbling of ourselves before the Lord. A drawing close to him because of the realization of what he has done for. That he would send his only son, Jesus Christ, not to condemn us, but to save us. John 3, 16 and 17. We humble ourselves before the Lord. So we're talking about confession as we were talking about coming before God to to ascribe and acknowledge the the things that we have done wrong, that the church may have failed in, those things that he himself has been just and righteous and merciful in, we do so humbly. We do so with a heart, seeing things the way that God sees things. And Daniel approaches the Lord with that very heart to the extent that he is mourning and, and grieving over those sins. Sackcloth and ashes. Daniel begins in verse 4, and he says, I prayed unto the the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Now, we have this declaration about the nature of God. Part of his confession, and in fact a significant part of his confession, is stating the reference, the the, the nature of God and who he is. He says that he is great. He is powerful. That is who he is. We understand that, and we should understand that to be, in some respects, that he is the creator. There is nothing greater than him. And it says that he is dreadful. Now, we look at that because... Uh, we, put, we have a different connotation for the word dreadful today. But what it means in, in back when this was translated into English is that he is worthy of fear and of reverence. He is worthy of the honor that we would bestow upon him. Doesn't mean that he is terrifying, doesn't mean that he is scary, doesn't mean that he is somehow unjustly vengeful and we have to watch out and creep around oh lord please don't smite me you know it means that he is worthy we we read it just this morning as we were looking at those the, those memory verses in revelation 4 11 about worthy O oh lord forever he's created everything and by him and for him were all things created but he continues he, he Not only is he great and powerful, that he's dreadful, that he's worthy of reverence, fear and reverence, but he continues, he's keeping the covenant of mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. So there's two things that are revealed there about God, and he is faithful and he's merciful. He's keeping covenant, he's keeping up his end of the bargain, and even though there may be some correction being taken here with his people in Judah, He is faithful to finish that covenant that he has instituted with them. All the way back to to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, but continuing forward with Abraham and and looking at that seed, even to David, and and having somebody from the lineage of David always present on the throne, all of those things, and looking forward to, as we see in Isaiah chapter 9, this coming Savior, this giving of a son, all of these things coming through the lineage of Abraham. Because all nations are going to be blessed by Him, through Him. God is keeping that covenant. And in so doing, He's extending Israel mercy. Over and over again, they've rejected their Creator. Over and over again, they've rejected their God, whom they instituted covenant with and said, yeah, we'll do those things that you want us to do. And over and over again, they've failed. And God has remained merciful to them. Turn with me to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. Just a few pages back in your Bible. Micah chapter 7. Let's read verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like unto thee? That pardoneth iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retains not his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He will turn again, he will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins in the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. When we look at the nature of God as it's proclaimed throughout and revealed throughout Scripture, we find that mercy and faithfulness are two of his attributes, two of those things that we can with certainty count upon. Israel realized that, Micah realized that, Daniel realizes that, and throughout all the Scriptures in the Psalms, even in the New Testament, we see these things confirmed over and over. In verse 5 of Daniel chapter 9, he continues, Daniel says, "We have sinned and have committed iniquity, and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from the precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we verse 6, neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land." So We have this statement about the nature of God, and now we have this statement about the nature of man. He says, "Listen, we have sinned and have committed iniquity. Obviously, they're two separate things. Now, we use them interchangeably, and and in many respects they are, but I want to talk about it just briefly. Sin is the transgression of the law. That's the biblical definition. And what that represents to you and I is man's inability to do right, or in other words, his depravity, his his complete failure from from a moral standpoint. We can't keep the law of God. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, fallen short of the standard that God has established. So sin is a reference to the transgression of the law, to man's inability to do right. Transgression, as he says here, we've sinned and we've transgressed against the, that's choosing to do sin. In the book of Romans, in chapter 1 and 2, it says, hey, we're all without excuse. God has revealed Himself to us. But there are those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're holding the truth in unrighteousness, restraining it, keeping it back. Even though God has revealed Himself, even though God has shown Himself to them, they choose sin. That's what transgression is. We have sin, obviously, they're very closely related. But one is a natural thing. This is our natural estate to be, to be sinful, to, to be unable to do that which is right. And then there's transgression. When we know what we should do, because God has given us that conscience in Romans chapter 2, we choose to do what we know is wrong. Closely related, but different. There's a nature of man, and we're stuck there. verse 7, Daniel says, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of like their trespass that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. Now, that confusion, we're not going to focus on that too much, but it's, uh, let's see. Now we're going to get to it in the, next, in the next one, just a moment. He begins, he says, O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to thee. Daniel has this statement, this clear understanding that, that not only is God righteous, but it belongs to him. It is who he is, it is his nature. He doesn't question the righteousness of God, punishing Judah, sending them into captivity. Righteousness belongs to God, it's his natural estate. He is the final standard of righteousness. That's where it's at. That's, that's where. We have to understand the righteousness of God. Turn with me to Nehemiah, chapter th- chapter nine, rather. Excuse me. If I can find Nehemiah. Wait for it. Why is it so hard? Probably a far more efficient way than just thumbing through. There it is, Nehemiah. Sorry, Nehemiah chapter nine. Let's look at verse thirty-three. As I said, Nehemiah chapter nine is a very similar passage to Daniel chapter nine. There's a confession, a general confession about the sins of, of the people, the righteousness of God, His justice and His mercy, and and so we pick that up. But but here in verse thirty-three says, How be it thou art just, and all that is brought upon us." thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. So what Nehemiah is acknowledging is that, listen, God, you are perfectly just in the consequence and bringing that to us that we have brought because you have done right. You've done that which is good, right, and excellent. In other words, God, you kept your end of the bargain 100%. The covenant that you established with us, you have never broken, but we have done wickedly. We have broken every part of our covenant we have not kept that covenant that we established with you that we committed to that we promised oh lord we of course we'll do that so god is not god is justified in his actions against them and there's an acknowledgement of that as if god needed any justification why would he not need justification well he is the creator he is sovereign he is the ruler of all that he has made And if he chose to squash us all like a bug, that would be just and right. But none of God's attributes are to the detriment or to the exclusion of any of his other attributes. So while he may be just, he's also merciful. God has done right toward Israel, toward his people, even when they have done wickedly. In Psalm 92, turn there with me for a moment, Psalm 92. There are other places we could go and look. Psalm 92, verse 15, says to show, and this is just a statement of fact, to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. No unrighteousness in him. Isaiah chapter 45, if you'll turn there with me for a moment. Isaiah chapter 45 verses 18 and 19 and this gets to the heart of why God is just why he is always righteous for thus saith the Lord that created the heavens and I'll just pause there he's created the heavens he is the creator there is nothing that he's going to do that is, un, that is wrong or unrighteous God himself that formed the earth and made it He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Verse 19, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. He is the source of righteousness. He is the standard of righteousness. There is no unrighteousness in him. He is the creator, therefore he gets to choose the standard. We look at righteousness and it's sort of a sliding scale. Because it's relative. We compare others to ourselves, we compare others to other people. We have this relative scale, but what we're ultimately comparing each other to is a flawed fallen broken standard well i'm better than that person but that person's better than me right in luke we find that parable here is the 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 publican and he comes to comes to uh the temple and he's worshiping and he won't even lift his eyes to heaven and he realizes his sinfulness and he beats on his chest and says Oh, lord be merciful unto me a sinner And the other standing by who are self-righteous look over and say, oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that publican over there. What we don't want to do, what we choose not to do, is take that standard of righteousness, God himself, and say, woe is me. I am unclean. I stand compared to the righteous God who who has created everything and established a standard of his righteousness, and I am woefully inadequate. Yet God in His grace and His mercy toward us has said, listen, I'm going to help you understand that. I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to give you a few points in which you can compare yourself and look at it and see that you have failed in these points and realize your sinfulness, realize your unrighteousness. And when we realize that unrighteousness within us, we realize the need And the provision that God has made in his son Jesus Christ. We have that comparison. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 3 for a moment. Romans chapter 3, I want to look at verse 5. While we're talking about comparisons, contrasts, it says, if our unrighteousness commended, or introduced, or proved, was an example of the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? He, he, I mean, it's a rhetorical question, and he puts in parentheses, I speak as a man, of course not, God forbid, how then shall God, shall God judge the world? Of course he's not unrighteous, of course he's, when he takes vengeance, he's perfectly justified in all of that, but by contrast, our unrighteousness, even our sinfulness, even our failure to keep that standard proves the righteousness of god it illustrates it we need to understand that that the righteousness of god here is daniel and he looks at this and he says lord righteousness belongs to you no matter what happens no matter what has befallen us even at your hand by your proclamation and we know that to be the case because he told us that in scripture by his prophets no matter what the case is lord you are righteous you are right in what you've done there's no charge to be laid at your feet by contrast though there is confusion he says confusion is upon our faces and he says it again in verse nine that word confusion literally means shame there is shame we have fallen short of your standard. We have not been righteous. We have done wickedly. We all of these things that we look at, that is us, and says that we are shamed. God's model people fail to exhibit trust in God. And here's what it does it sows confusion to the other nations and it brings shame upon them who, who would so eagerly forsake the Creator. And ultimately, their savior. In Ezra chapter nine, turn there with me. Remember, Ezra is sort of is that other confession. Ezra won't be as hard to find because I already found Nehemiah and they're side by side. Ezra chapter nine. But here he's making this statement, this proclamation of, of confession for the nation. And he's also declaring the righteousness of God. But in so doing, he says this, verses 6 and 7 of Ezra chapter 9. Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face up to thee. My God, for my iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses growing up under the heavens. He understands fully his depravity. He understands that as a nation, that as a people, we have really blown it. It's over our heads. It's In in other words, it covers us. Verse 7, Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword and to the captivity, and to a spoil and to confusion of face, to shame, in other words, as it is this day. Now, Jeremiah chapter 2 gives us some insight into this a little bit because Jeremiah chapter 2 verses 26 and 27. He says, as a thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their, th- their priests, and their prophets The thief, when he gets caught, he's ashamed of what he's done. It's found out. He's exposed. His law-breaking ways, his theft, his his unconcern for those that he would steal from, all of that is exposed and, and shown to the world publicly. And in the same way, that's what's happening to Israel. Here we are, God's people, and our sinfulness is exposed. Our sins and transgressions, our choice, to not follow him, to not honor him, to not walk in unison with him, which we promised we would, is exposed. He goes on in verse 27, saying, To a stalk thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. God is here speaking, and he says, listen, they've made these, this stock, this, this tree, and that rock over there. they proclaim them to be their gods, and they're worshiping that. But he says, in the end, they will realize who is God. God is faithful in the midst of all of this, and he says, listen, I will restore you. Now, here we are. We're, by way of application, we want to understand this. Because, as I said, there are some real things for us as the church, as the body of Christ, to unpack and to apply. Because we, while we haven't replaced Israel, we are God's representative people. We are those that have taken his name upon us. And the question that I want to ask us personally and, and lar- at large, the church, have we taken the name of God in vain? As his children, not just His model people, but as His children, have I brought confusion of who my Father is to the lost and dying of this world, to those who are around me? Have I brought confusion? Have I misrepresented in any way, shape, or form? Now, God in His uh, providence is going to protect those that we would confuse. and And I say that uh, in, in Romans chapter six, there is some. Uh, let me let me just turn there for a moment. <clears throat> He's going to watch out for those, and even even the failures that we may have. Are going to be confirmations, even by, like I said, even in Romans chapter 3, verse 5, there, that contrast, even the contrast reveals his righteousness. But in Romans chapter 6, as we ponder the question, have I taken the name of God in vain? And we should do that personally. Lord, is there anything that I should repent of, that I should turn from? Is there anything that I am engaged in that is somehow misrepresenting you, the body of Christ? how, How that is supposed to work? That's something that we need to take stock of. Here is Israel, and and as we look at the confession of their their sort of representative people, as recorded here in Scripture, this is where they're at. Lord, shame is on us because we have confused them, because we have not witnessed clearly about who you are. Even though his glory, his his righteousness, his justice, and his mercy shine forth, because that is who he is, Lord, we didn't do anything to further that. in Romans chapter 6, we find this in verse 19. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. In the past, this is how we lived. In Christ, this is how we should live. We're yielding ourselves to something different for when you were servants of sin you were free from righteousness what fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death that's what it yields us verse 22 he says but now being made free from sin you and i as believers the church in general we are free from sin and become the servants to god that's where we are asked where we should abide have You are fruit unto holiness in the end, everlasting life. It's not a conditional statement. We talked about that when we were in Romans chapter 6. It's not a conditional statement, but what is it saying? In many respects, it says to you and I, your body is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. Yield it. Let it be so. Be conformable to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't get in the way. Don't sow confusion. God's model people failed to exhibit trust. They failed to walk in obedience, even though they'd established covenant that they would. In verses 13 through 15, we, we find the covenant broken, we find sort of the details of the covenant broken. Now let's, let's read that real quick. Verse 13. And I realize there's a lot that we're, Uh, glossing over that we're we're skipping from verse 7 down to verse 13. Isn't that we're glossing over those things? Um, He said, "Well, for example, in verse 9, he says, To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. It's a statement of the same truths that we've looked at. And then he talks about, makes a statement about the sinfulness of, of Israel. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which, we, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel, verse 11, have transgressed the law. We've all chosen to break it, even by departing, that they, may, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore, the curse is poured upon us. Listen, God, you are righteous in sending judgment and correction to us. So, so everything is reiterated we have focused here more potentially but that's not where the lord brought us this morning so verse 13 we have this covenant broken as it is written in the law of moses all this evil is come upon us yet made we not our prayer before the lord our god that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth i want to give some background here let's turn to exodus chapter 19 Exodus chapter 19. Now in Exodus 19, obviously they've come out of Egypt. Uh, this is where God establishes covenant with Israel, right before he gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And the discussion between God and Moses as representative of the people is such that says, listen, Moses, ask the people if they'll, if they'll keep my commands, and if they will, I'll be their God and they'll be my people. That's the nature of the covenant. I'll be their God if they do what I tell them to do. Exodus chapter 19, let's read verse 1. In the third month when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai, and they pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. Verse 3. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thou shalt say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles wings and brought you unto myself. All right So here they, they've seen everything, they've seen the plagues, they've seen his deliverance. They've seen his, how he's carried them on how he's brought them out, carried them on eagle's wings. He showed his faithfulness, his trustworthiness to them. You've witnessed this, you've all participated in it. You've experienced it firsthand, that's what he's telling them. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words that thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. This is where God says, this is the nature of the covenant. I'll set you apart. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a peculiar treasure to me above all people on the earth. That, that You're going to be my special model people, Israel. That's the covenant that I'm making with you right now. And here's what happens. The people say, yes, we'll do it. And, and, and we, re, we pick this up in Exodus chapter 20. Everything that God says, hey, we'll do it. We're excited. We're on board, Lord. This sounds great. That's what the nation of Israel says. And before Moses comes down from the mountain, they've already fallen into idolatry. And God would have been perfectly justified to say, listen, I'm done. And he had a little bit of discussion with Moses about that. God, in his mercy, chose to continue in covenant with the nation of Israel. And in, in the midst of all of this, as he's instituting covenants, he, and as we get into Deuteronomy in particular, as he reiterates this covenant with the next generation, because that's what, what it is, right? Here are those that get to go into the promised land. They were just kids when we didn't believe God, and then we had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, I'm going to reiterate all this with you. And he gives them warning. He says, listen, there is a covenant between us, and there is... When you break the covenant, there are consequences with it associated with that. Turn me to Deuteronomy chapter 29. There are dozens of references that we could look at it through Deuteronomy, even some in Leviticus. We're just gonna look at a couple this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 20 through 29. The Lord will not spare him, but then the but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. Is, we, have, we have these interactions and these individually. And that's what's being iterated here. There are some individual problems, some individual uh We'll to use what, what God says, curses. And I hesitate to use that word because we have a different connotation today than when what was written here. But there, there are curses to the individuals who would not keep that covenant. turns me to the next chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 17 through 19. Here he is speaking to the nation in general. And he tells them, but if thine heart turn away so that thou wilt not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish, and you shall not prolong you your days upon the land, whether thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. I says, listen, here it is. I'm making it very clear. We instituted a covenant all the way back 40 years ago. You broke it immediately, and then you continue to break it. And here we are, I'm reiterating it to you, and what I want you to understand is that there is a choice put before you. You're going to reap what you sow. What's put before you is blessing or cursing. Therefore, he says, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. And as we look at the history of Israel, as we look at what they would do in their relationship with God, sometimes it was up, sometimes it chose life, sometimes it was down, and it chose cursing. And God at any moment could have said, listen, I'm through, and I'm wiping them out, and I'm starting over. But in his mercy, he said, no, I'm going to correct them. There's going to be a consequence. They're going to reap what they've sown. But in the end, here they are, still my people. I am going to be faithful no matter what. I'm going to keep my covenant 100%, despite their adulterous nature. So we have this covenant broken. We have the nation of Israel that won't walk, walk with their God. Yet we find this covenant kept as well. God kept his covenant with Judah. God is justified in his corrective action. He is just and faithful. In Hebrews chapter three, if you'll turn that there with me for just a moment, he kept his covenant. Let me let me read before you turn. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter three. I'm going to read Daniel chapter nine verses fourteen and fifteen. This is where God keeps that covenant. He says, therefore. Has the Lord watched upon the evil? In other words, God has allowed this to come to pass and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works, which he does, for we obeyed not his voice. In other words, there's nothing that God has done that is wrong. We deserved what we got, we reaped what we sowed, we chose cursing over blessing. And now, O Lord our God, Thou hast brought Thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has gotten Thee renown, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. let turns turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3 for just a moment. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 3, let's read verse 12. take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, I, I want to, uh, we've come here, and we're going to talk about this. This applies to you and I as believers in many respects, but it also applies to the nation of Israel, right? Here they are, this is the book of Hebrews. That's who he's talking to. It's who he's being written to. And as we've studied through and we looked at at. In, in, in Bible study on Thursday nights where we studied obedience. And part of that obedience, what we quickly realized is that in the Old Testament, when obedience was being discussed, it means hear and do. Right? When we're trusting God, it means that I'm going to hear what He says and I'm going to do it. When Indiana Jones on his last crusade well it was almost his last crusade because they've made more movies but in the last crusade here he is right and they get to the bridge spoilers i know they're spoilers because I, I know my kids haven't seen it but they get to the bridge and they have this little journal and all they have is talking about a step of faith The bridge is invisible you can't see it there's this chasm they have to get across it They have to walk by faith. They have to trust that what has been recorded here in this little book is true. And what do they do? They step out onto the bridge that you can't see, and they walk across it. They heard and they did. Because there was trust. Because there was an operation of faith. And as we get into Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, what he says, Take heed, brother. Be careful. Watch out lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Somebody who would hear and not do, who wouldn't trust in departing from the living God. But he says, but exhort one another daily by it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We trust and hear. Now, the, the thing is this, Right. This falls all the way back to presuppositions and worldview. What are they presupposing is true? What are they presupposing that from the very beginning is true? We hold two presuppositions, right? That God exists and His Word is true. Now, there might be subtly hidden within that a couple of other presuppositions, but in general, that lays a foundation for a biblical worldview. If God exists, then He does. Right? And, and Scripture assumes that, in the beginning, God. It doesn't start with some explanation of how He came to be, who He is. Just in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our first encounter with Him is as Creator, speaking everything into existence. And then later we find out that He's self-existent, that He, I am that I am, that He's without beginning, without end, that He's unchanging, that He's all of these perfect attributes. But the assumption is that here he is, he exists. And he exists and he has spoken to us and his word, the Bible, scripture, it is true. And that it comes to bear on every facet of our lives. So the question is, am I going to heed it? Or am I going to ignore it? And that's the question posed in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 not asked as a question but there it is So, so what does the nation of Israel what did they assume to be true I mean there's obviously some kind of a breakdown here because God is correcting them but what do they hold to be true let's look turn with me to Psalm 106 Psalm 106 verses 1 through 8 Psalm of David. No, hold on, Psalm 106, one through eight. Says, Praise ye the Lord. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that does righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. Oh, visit me with thy salvation, that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. He saved them for His namesake, that He might make His mighty power to be known. While it may not stand as the ultimate confession of faith for the nation of Israel, we have here clear statements about what they held to be true. Blessed are they that keep judgment. Blessed are they that walk in righteousness at all times. Visit me with thy salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. That is something that they held and they believed. There was a confession of sin. We know that we failed, but nevertheless, for his name's sake, he saved us. Luke chapter 18, if you'll turn there with me. Luke chapter 18. Let's look at verse 13. We have this publican and he stands there, and I referenced this earlier, standing afar off, and he would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God be merciful unto me, a sinner. He understood his nature, But even greater than that, he understood the mercy and the nature of God, and he operated in faith. He operated in trust that, Lord, you would forgive me if I'll just humble myself before you. Judah has broken their covenant. They failed, but God has kept his covenant. And the good news for you and I as believers is that God keeps his covenant even when we fail that you and I as the church, the body of Christ, when we fail as a as a group, God remains faithful. In the last few verses, verses 16 through 19. As you read through those and we have Daniel there confessing again for the for for the people. But in this, we find several statements. And I want to, and I'm just going to read these statements. He says in verse 16, uh, let's see. Thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. In verse 17, he says, for the Lord's sake, In verse 18, the last portion, he says, we do not present our supplication before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. In verse 19, he says, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. As Daniel gets into this confession, his motivation isn't that he and his his Jewish brethren would be brought back to Jerusalem and enjoy the opportunity to worship in the temple once again. That isn't his motivation. That's not his heart. He says, listen, we've confused them. We've sowed shame in your name. In other words, there's an expression of concern for the glory of God. He says, Lord, if we have misrepresented you, and we have, he he understands that. For your glory, Lord, restore us as a corrective measure. We have tarnished your name, but for your name's sake, restore us that people may see again your mercy, your justice, and your righteousness. I want to look at three references here, and we're going to close this morning. First Kings, chapter nine. First Kings, chapter nine, I want to read verses seven through nine. We need to understand, first off, that God's power is known and it's understood, even in His judgment of Israel First Kings nine, verses seven through nine. Then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have allowed for my name, which I have hallowed for my name, excuse me, will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. And this is what Daniel has already expressed. He says, listen, we, are, we have confusion of face. We have shame everywhere that you've scattered us. We're this byword. We're those understood who have failed is what he's saying. And at this house, verse 8, which is high, everyone that passes by it shall be astonished and shall hiss, and they shall say, what has the Lord done thus unto this land and to this house? And they shall answer, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt and then have taken hold upon other gods and have worshiped in them and served them Therefore has the Lord brought upon them all this evil. So, so I say I'll have to say this, right? Even though God would correct them, even though they have failed, even though they may be scattered to the wind, God's judgment is still understood. His power is known even through His judgment. First and foremost, God's glory is intact. Even if we don't represent it, even if we don't acknowledge it, there it is. But Daniel has a concern for it. Daniel has a priority to honor the Lord in all that he does, says, and thinks. In Isaiah chapter 48, turn there with me. We find an example of God extending glory for his name's sake. Isaiah forty-eight verses nine through eleven. Isaiah speaking on behalf of God, for my name's sake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee that I cut thee not off. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. Hearken. <clears throat> Excuse me, I skipped verse 10. He says, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. God is telling them, He says, Listen, I'm going to defer mine anger. What He's saying here is, Listen, Israel, I could start over. I could disown you as my people. I could choose a completely another lineage of people and start over, and they would be my model people. But He says, For my name's sake, I am deferring mine anger. And what I'm going to do is refine you in affliction, in the furnace of affliction. Not, not like silver, but in, in, but in affliction. That hardship is going to melt you down. The bad stuff will be skimmed away and you'll be purified. That's exactly what's happening to Judah here in Babylon. And he says, for my own sake, why should my name be polluted? I will not give my glory unto another. He's not going to share it. God extends mercy for his namesake. So that it will be understood. So that his nature and his character will be recognizable to the world around us. To those that he has created. Even in his just punishment of israel we see his mercy exhibited we see his kindness we see his favor upon them we see his love and mercy to the world around us including ourselves as he delivers on the promise to provide a savior through that heritage through that lineage and last i want to look at psalm 115 the first three verses psalm 115 1 through 3. We talked about the righteousness of God just a little bit, but it, He is right in all that He does. It says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake wherefore should the heathen say where is now their god but our god is in the heavens and he does whatsoever he has pleased there is no unrighteousness in him we already established that whatever he is doing whatever he is up to there in heaven he's done whatsoever it has pleased him and that is righteous it is right it is true it is just it is equitable it is all of the above He asked the question, why, what, wherefore, why would the heathen say, how can they say, where is the, now they're gone? He somehow removed himself from whatever the case may be, right? That's, that's what people would say. And, and people phrase it th- to us today, you know, if God exists, why would he let such bad things happen? Why would he forsake us? Why would he? It's the same question. And what it is, is an attack on the righteousness of God. It's an attack on His glory. It's somehow lowering Him from His position uh, of Creator and making Him like something that He has created. And what I want to leave you with to ponder this this week is, is this question, am I ashamed of the justice of God? Am I ashamed at those things that might come our way? Do I somehow misrepresent his righteousness in all that he does when he exercises his sovereignty and his providence? Here we are in a world, and we prayed this morning for things that are happening around the world, whether it's in Ukraine or whether there's issues in China and, and food hoarding and all of these kinds of things. and And somehow... For us, they are scary, they're unknowns, they're uncertainties. But for you and I as believers, we're not like the heathens who say, where is God, has He forsaken us? God is right in all that He is doing, and He's faithful to you and I. Maybe it is that these things are happening as a wake-up call for us as a church that we might say, hey, we're being refined in the midst of this affliction. Maybe it's a greater event than all of that, and God is orchestrating those things that need to happen to bring about His will and purpose for the end of things. I don't stand here and purport to know, but what I do know is that God has proven His faithfulness through His people Israel, that He has said, listen, even though you have forsaken me, even though you have been adulterous and and gone after other gods, even though You have failed me and not kept covenant with me. I have kept covenant with you. And then he went on to establish with you and I as believers an even surer covenant, one that isn't based upon anything that we would do. It's unconditional in its application. It isn't a, I'll be your God if you do this. He says, I will be your God and provide everything necessary. I will declare you to be righteous. I will forgive and, and forget your sin nature, through my Son, Jesus Christ. We can trust, no matter what's happening, we can trust that God is He, that He exists and that His Word is true. And we can operate on those two presuppositions and base a worldview based completely upon that with surety and hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word, Lord, the the surety and the hope that we experience through all that Christ has done on our behalf. I thank you, Lord, that even as we look in the book of Daniel, as we see the confession of of national sin, Lord, those things that we might emulate, whether it's individually or as a family or or as a church or as a nation, we also see statements of, Your righteousness, of your justice, of your mercy, of your trustworthy and faithfulness. And God, by your grace, would you you settle those things in our hearts and minds? You haven't given us a spirit of fear, but one of love and of power and of sound mind. Establish us, Lord, in the truth that we may be unwavering, that we may contend for you, that we may be your advocates, your, your representatives, ambassadors to the world around us. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, for that privilege and honor. And as we sing, as we worship this morning, I pray you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.